Welcome to Prajna Sparks, a podcast where we listen to a Dharma talk, contemplate with our mind and in our heart, and engage in guided meditation. In this episode, we ask, how do you oppose dualistic mind with a dualistic mind? Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. The Dharma is boundless. I vow to master it. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. This is one of many formulations of what's called the Bodhisattva vow. The vow of beings who choose to take up a career in samsara by choice rather than involuntarily, using the realization of emptiness to be able to connect with beings in the midst of samsaric misperception, being of whatever assistance it can be to help beings onto the path of Dharma. As you can see in this particular formulation, the vow of the Bodhisattva reflects a view that is quite paradoxical. There is a courage to vowing to save beings, infinite in number, and a simplicity that comes of saying, yes, numberless, inexhaustible, boundless, unattainable. I'm still here. We talked about these three primary energies of the path, simplicity, courage, and paradox last year. We also looked at the Tibetan Lojong practice for healing dualistic mind in our 59 days of healing at the beginning of this year. There too, we see all kinds of seeming contradictions in the practice instructions. For example, when evils abound, transform adversity into the path of awakening. There are other texts from this Lojong tradition that also seem to have a very counterintuitive approach to things, which can seem really confusing or even mistaken. For example, in the eight verses for healing dualistic mind, we find, should someone overcome with jealousy, wrong me with abuse of scorn and still more, may I take the defeat upon myself, offering up the victory to them. This can sound masochistic. It can also sound foolish. And any number of other labels, categories, and descriptions of things that fall under the I don't want column for dualistic mind. Throughout all of these various episodes where we looked at these paradoxical situations, instructions that are counterintuitive, and descriptions of how to heal, transform, and transcend dualistic mind, there's been a constant refrain. What's the alternative? How do I engage the world without the taint of dualistic perception if I'm still stuck in dualistic perception? This is a beautiful question. It's a question that stymies dualistic mind. As a result, it's one that really starts 
to plumb the depths of practice. In the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, the view is one that corresponds with the result, Buddhahood. In other words, it's a view that corresponds with jnana in Sanskrit, yeshe in Tibetan, gnosis or non-dual wisdom in English. If we could function directly out of non-dual wisdom, then we wouldn't need the teachings. We wouldn't need the practice. Dualistic mind is already vanquished. So what do we do in the meantime? How do you have a view at the time of the path, which we're all traveling in some way, that aligns with the result? This is the beauty of this approach to Dharma practice, to living a life imbued with Dharma. It takes the result as the path. It finds ways to resonate with that non-dual wisdom of gnosis, even in the middle of dualistic perception, active in samsaric consciousness. So let's take a look at how that works. In these teachings, samsara, or cyclic existence, is the cycle of continually moving from kleshas that motivate intentional action called karma, which in turn yield dukkha, any of the various painful, unsatisfying, or unfulfilling experiences. We encounter nirvana, liberation, and omniscience, completely free of the misperception of samsara are the same in essence. Water, for example, can appear as a liquid, as a gas, or as a solid. But water vapor, liquid water, and ice are in essence H2O, molecule made up of a particular combination of hydrogen and oxygen. Depending on the Conditions liquid water encounters, such as heat or cold, it will appear as a liquid, as steam, or as ice. Similarly, samsara and nirvana are considered the same in essence from the perspective of these teachings. It is not the case that to attain liberation from samsara on any level, we have to leave samsara as a physical place, and go to some other place. We're not even leaving a mental place and going to a different mental place. From the perspective of the Mahamudra tradition of Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, samsara and nirvana are experiences that depend on whether we have or have not realized the true nature of mind. That true nature is gnosis, non-dual wisdom. Samsara, then, can be described as the lack of recognition, the lack of embodying our true nature. How, then, do we get out of it? It seems like a trap that we can never escape. If dualistic perception is what keeps us trapped in samsara, how do we ever break through? This is why taking the result as the path is so valuable. No, we cannot immediately manifest non-dual wisdom. If we could, then we'd be done. But what we can do is tap into those infinite stores of 
qualities such as intelligence, discernment, wisdom, kindness, love, curiosity, fearlessness, and more, to engage all of our experiences from a perspective that, while not non-dual per se, is not entangled by dualistic perception. I like to think of this perspective as sacred creativity. In many ways, sacred creativity is the way we walk and expand the path to non-dual wisdom shining forth without impediment. Where dualistic mind tends to be limited, categorizing, oppositional, flat, hierarchical, exclusionary, and the like, sacred creativity holds the paradox of a mind that is non-dual wisdom by nature, yet operating in the form of dualistic perception, like water by nature operating in the form of a solid when it is ice. What do we know about sacred creativity? It's not as simple as saying the antidote or opposite to dualistic mind means not being dualistic. That in and of itself is dualistic. Anything that is an opposite of something else implies two things. This is the mode of dualistic mind. Sacred creativity invokes an energetic, a kinetics of mind that is inclusive, organic, and holistic in character. Even that word whole shares a root in the word hale, H-A-L-E, which we find again in healthy and holy. This is about a mindset that approaches experience through integrity, through wholeness, through unity. Rather than reject one thing over another, there is the ability to welcome with openness, expansiveness, and even a poetic beauty, paradox, and welcome. When we open to all experience, it can seem a bit chaotic. One of the qualities of dualistic mind is how orderly it is. It puts things into very organized packets of information and then seals them there. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of organization. I love organizing. There's nothing about sacred creativity that rejects, for example, order or organization. The difference is that it is not limited to that. Sacred creativity is an openness and expansiveness of mind that allows us to be responsive to all of our various circumstances without having to pin anything down, without having to weigh anything down, and without having to choose between this thing and that, both or neither. It is capacious. Can you feel your heart jump with possibility? Sacred creativity allows for this, for that, for both, for neither, to occur responsive to the various causes and conditions in a given situation. It's what allows the mind to become more nimble, 
less tense, less stiff and rigid with the constant back and forth of dualistic mind and the actions it engenders. It's not just about thinking things in a dualistic way. The mind controls our speech, our body, and puts it into service of whatever we think. So when we think this is good, that's bad. Our body and our speech aligns, chasing after what is good, avoiding what is bad. From the perspective of sacred creativity, there isn't a blindness or a sameness that paints everything with one brush. Rather, there's incredible intricacy of discernment that sees that what we call, quote, good is never categorically positive alone. There are always some downsides. And the same with what we call, quote, bad. Nothing is ever all one thing. Sacred creativity allows us to explore, engage, and be with our life, with our experience, with other individuals, with the environment, in a way that is completely responsive, open, and engaged in a space of possibility, in tune with the intricate dance of interdependent causes and conditions that feed each and every moment. Moreover, that suppleness of mind, that creativity of engaging in all experience with wonder, curiosity, interest, allows us to proceed on the path towards non-dual wisdom more and more. In this approach, we can see sacred creativity as the stuff of our practice, the mindset that we bring to our practice on the cushion, as well as our everyday life practice the way we engage with loved ones, the way we do our work, the way we cook our food or eat it or grow it. Everything we do becomes practice when we are engaged in sacred creativity as a way of being. It allows us to be in the world in a way that is aligned with the true nature of our mind, non-dual wisdom. Gnosis. What's more, we're becoming more and more habituated to that rather than strengthening and calcifying our habit of dualistic perception. It doesn't make things easy. Sacred creativity rarely has pat answers for anything, it has a very rich, engaged, and organic approach to meeting life greeting life, and engaging it, just as it is, in the particular uniqueness of the causes and conditions coming together in any given moment. It yields a sweetness, a poignancy, and a richness to our everyday life, even as it starts to move us towards a much more panoramic and spacious way of understanding all that is. The root of all of this is understanding that dualistic mind rears its head out of a painful fallacy. 
the fallacy of a truly existent me pitted against a truly existent you and everybody else. Sacred creativity recognizes that me and you are not easy to put into compartments as good or bad. Can you say that you're completely independent from beings to whom you're close, those who you love, who raised you, who fed you, or even strangers whose names and faces you do not know, but whose work, whose bodies, whose efforts bring food to your table, clothes to your back, and so forth. It's very hard to have an inclusive perspective of others in the world from the black and white false binary standpoint of dualistic mind. Sacred creativity revels in this space of openness, exploration, and gratitude. Over the next week, we invite you to contemplate ways that you can bring sacred creativity to your mind, to your practice, and to your relationships with others, with yourself, with the earth in which we live. We hope it gives you a taste of all that you are, of all that you can be, of all that you will be. To close, I'd like to quote Shantideva, who makes a particular aspiration for beings out of this space of sacred creativity. It may not sound logical. In fact, it sounds impossible. Sacred creativity is the mindset that is a rich tapestry of simplicity, courage, and paradox, not daunted by categories such as possible and impossible. It is the mindset that embraces life as it is, without preconditions. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to cross the water. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for land, a lamp for those who long for light, for all who need a resting place, a bed, for those who need a servant, may I be their slave. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of wealth, a word of power and the supreme healing. May I be the tree of miracles for every being, the abundant cow that fulfills wishes, just like the earth and space itself and all the other mighty elements for boundless multitudes of beings. May I always be the ground of life, the source of varied sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I be constantly their source of livelihood until they pass beyond all sorrow. Yes, yeah, I just love this term, sacred creativity. It's so 
evocative. It calls to mind so much. As you described in your Dharma talk at the beginning, there's so many facets to it. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more as we move into the contemplation aspect of this, what it is that sacred creativity means to you, how it came up for you. Really, it's a way of talking about what is called view in Buddhist teachings and practice. When we look at the eightfold path that the Buddha lays out, the very first element of that path is called right view. And it just means the vision for your life, the way you encounter experience and how you embrace it. When we're working from an extremely dualistic standpoint, as we've been talking about over the last several months, our vision is very limited, constricted, and tends to hop from one thing to another without a multidimensional kind of perspective. From the Mahamudra teachings in the Kagyu lineage, as you know, the path reaches its consummate fruition in the state of non-dual wisdom called Gnosis or Yeshe in Tibetan, Jnana in Sanskrit. The question is, how do we practice non-dual wisdom? It's not like something you can put on like headphones and then take off when you're done with it. And we're still constricted by the habit of dualistic thinking. Sacred creativity is the name that came to me to describe how it is that we engage in life and experience from a perspective that is gradually less constrained by the habit of dualistic thinking alongside the various practices that bring us closer and closer to manifesting our true nature, which is gnosis, non-dual wisdom. Oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. Hits to the heart of it. Thank you. So in the coming week or so, until the next quarter moon, we invite all of you to try this out. Contemplation is a very lively practice. Sure, it means discussing things, thinking about things you might outline or journal or write a song. Any of these things that help you to process the teachings that you listen to is considered contemplation. It's a way of getting the teaching more internalized. We start out with a teaching out there somewhere, a Dharma talk or a book or a video. Contemplation is what actually starts to bring it inwards more. We start to mull it around in our minds and ponder it, talk to other people about it and so forth. Then the next step after contemplation is meditative inquiry, alternating between experiential analysis and resting meditation to develop visceral understanding, less intellectual like in contemplation and more experiential. We'll give you these few seeds for your contemplation over the next week on the topic of sacred creativity. For example, you might start out just noticing how often you have a very strong reaction to something, be it outrage or euphoria. Pick up that thing that's prompting that reaction in you, turn it this way and that, and say, is it categorically positive? Is it categorically negative? 
do the best you can to expand your perspective so that you can see the immediate things that contradict the sense that it is good or bad, as well as some things down the road that would change your impressions about it. So that's one thing you can do. As you do that throughout your days in the coming week, you can also just check in with yourself. It's likely that the same exact thing will prompt the same exact response many times. That's what a habit is. Every time it comes up, let yourself ease around it. It's not about going to the opposite extreme. That's still dualistic. It's about being very panoramic, expansive, and capacious allowing possibilities that the dualistic mind doesn't see into the equation. Another thing you can do is just check in to see how that feels. Does your mind feel any more at ease? Does it feel more interested, more creative, more engaged with the multiple layers of dimension and experience? Or not. Whatever your experience is, take a look at it see how it goes, and then join us on the quarter moon as we discuss this topic some more and answer your questions. You can submit questions by email, Instagram, or Facebook. The links are all in the episode notes. This has been Yashane Zopa. Be sure to join us again on the quarter moon as we answer your questions on sacred creativity. And stay tuned now for a guided meditation with Lama Zopa. Shivni is our Tibetan singing bowl artist. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to like, follow, share, and review Prashna Smarks. It means a lot to us. Check the episode notes for those links and for more resources on today's topic. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Prajna Sparks. Thank you for listening. May all beings benefit. Hello, friends, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for this meditation on sacred creativity. There are so many different ways that we can engage with the meditation on sacred creativity. For instance, we could do the analytical and resting meditation on any of the aspects heard in Lama Yeshe's Dharma talk. Or we could focus on any clarity that we've arrived at through our contemplations on that teaching, or any of a number of other ways to engage with the subject matter. For our practice together here, we will be focusing on opening ourselves up to sacred creativity by tapping into gratitude in an organic, authentic way, which I will guide us through in just a few minutes. First, though, let's begin by taking our seat, arriving in this present moment. We simply recognize and allow whatever is going on in our thoughts and our feelings, letting it be there without rejecting it or following after it, without getting enwrapped by the storylines that those thoughts and feelings may be presenting to us. Use your posture and the sensations of the earth supporting you, the space around you making room for you, 
the sky open above you, and especially all of the energy flowing in your body with your erect spine and stable, seated posture, to simply feel into being present here and now on your seat. Let's just take a moment or two to feel into that. Now let's take a couple of minutes to settle and clarify our attention using the breath or any focal object you prefer for shamatha tranquility meditation. Again, the technique here is to rest mind one-pointedly on the meditation focus. Anytime we get distracted or drowsy, unclear or agitated, we recognize that we have wandered away from the clarity of attention, the focal object which we're using to stabilize our awareness. And gently, non-judgmentally, we return to that meditation focus of our breath or whatever you have selected. So let's practice like that for a couple of minutes.
Now we will begin to work with recognizing interdependence through a lens of gratitude. At any point in which you feel awe or gratitude or openness, stop thinking, stop analyzing, and just let your awareness rest one-pointedly on that experience of awe or gratitude in the same way that we were just using the breath or whatever meditation object we used for our shamatha practice. Begin by calling to mind something which you enjoyed today. It can be something simple, like a cup of tea, or having gone out for a stroll, or reading a few pages in a good book, taking a nice shower. Whatever it was, bring it clearly to mind and feel again the pleasure of it. Let yourself remain in that felt sense of enjoyment. Don't rush away from it. All you need to do is just let yourself enjoy it again as you remember it. Turn your awareness to just how many beings were involved in bringing you this moment of enjoyment. For me, I am remembering my cup of tea this morning that I made for myself. I used a cup made by someone else. Tea leaves grown on the other side of the world with much hard work and all the labor and time it took to get those tea leaves to me, the care and creativity of the tea box designers, the bees and beekeepers and shop owners and clerks that allowed me to sweeten the tea to just how I like it on a cold morning. Not to mention the inventors and engineers and planners, and craftspeople involved in the miracle of having clean running water right out of the tap in my home available to make my morning tea. And of course, there's also all of the beings that were killed in the process of harvesting the tea leaves, of them being transported to me, packaged, all of that. So they're also present. Can you feel the connection with these beings? Everyone involved in that experience of pleasure? How amazing. As I look at my tea, there's also just the sense of presence that I feel. There's the earth 
from which the tea leaves grew. There's the imprint of all of these beings, their continuation in this cup of tea that I'm enjoying. Of course, that's not the only continuation they have. And likewise, we have so much effect, impact, and we're impacted by so much. There's this beautiful interweaving of all of us, all beings, the earth that supports us, the environment that nurtures us, the sky and space that makes room for us, all of it's contained in everything. It's just mind-blowing in that way. And it is not just the moment of enjoyment, tasting the tea. But that connection continues through what I did all day long. All those beings and the energy they put forth contributes to the ways that I spent my day, including this, right now, talking to you. Can you see how this wave of goodness, of support, enables each of us to be in our lives, to go through our days? To make what we will of all these amazing, unique moments that we call life. And we are always part of this contributing and receiving. We are never isolated or cut off, even if we feel that way sometimes. How amazing. How wondrous. Allow yourself to feel this open, deep breadth of connection to countless beings. How the gifts of those countless beings empower us to live our lives. And how what we choose to do with our lives contributes to others. Emaho. Conclude by taking whatever goodness has come of this and direct it with your intention to the benefit of us all, 
all these beings with whom we are continually supported and supporting. Thank you.